honestly, Jason, we have to really tell a story when we're releasing authentically. If it's not true, they're, they're going to see right through you. But a story really helps to define that place. And then hopefully you get enough folks to, you know, agree that it works with their business plan. And then you effectuate that change over time. But you work tirelessly to marry the right brands to the right space. Welcome to Shovel Ready, here to inspire, educate, and entertain you by breaking down the real estate development process. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend and leave a positive review to help us attract more quality guests. And now, your hosts, Jason Chow and Lynn Curry. Welcome everybody to Shovel Ready. My name is Jason Shaw. I'm super excited today. With me as always is my co-host Lynn Curry. How are you doing, Lynn? I am fantastic. How's Colorado? Colorado was amazingly beautiful as it always is and nice cool temperatures. We did get a little bit of rain, but you know, when we live in places like Austin and when we go to places like Colorado, rain is always a good thing. Sounds like you're getting a little bit of rain in Austin now too, right? We are. It's uh, gloomy and gray out, but again, we're, we're thrilled. It's brought this cold front that's going through the center of the country. So we also are in the 80s as opposed to hundreds, which, you know, I'll take the rain any day when it does that. Well, you know, I'm super excited today. You know why? Why? Tell me. Well, not only today we're recording the finale of our podcast, Shovel Ready, I get to spend more time to talk to our host today, Jillian Sabaugh. You know how MCs, sometimes they say they spit hot fire? Yes. Well, Jillian spit gold nuggets. So Nice. <laughs> I'm looking forward to everything she has to share with us. You know, she's more in the commercial space. I think most people are familiar with uh, residential. So in talking about the Lisa exit, which is our last episode, last chapter, I'm super excited to have her to be on to share more about that world, how it works in the more retail commercial world, and hopefully we can draw analogies to the residential world as well. So without further ado, Jillian, share with us a little bit. What's your background? What are you currently working on? Thank you for the introduction. Thank you for having me, Jason and Lynn. What an honor. I will try to live up to that uh, gold nugget analogy. I'm writing that for um, my obit. That was awesome. Thank you. I'm a Southern California native, president and founder of a boutique commercial brokerage and consulting firm. So really what we do is advise, you know, provide advisory for both landlord and retail tenants, which you know, ultimately create very thoughtful and vibrant places, especially now more than ever, that are you know, energetic, but also um, quite strong financially. So we really try to marry the right brands with the right spaces and the right location, which is a delicate art. It takes quite a bit of intention and, you know, done deal by deal. So my background is I graduated from USC in Southern California and got to work for Rick Caruso, a notable developer based in Los Angeles, um, whose retail projects are quite visible. And I really learned, you know, the art of place and placemaking. And if you can get someone to stay longer, they're very surely likely to spend more. And so it was really wonderful education of how to basically 
choreograph and program a project with retailers and restaurants that make sense for the community. And then ultimately, if they do well, reward the landlord by higher rents and length of you know term, if not renewals. From there, I decided to go to the REIT side where I worked for Westfield, which has since been acquired by a large French firm, but that was right in 2007-8. And it was fascinating, you know, to see the world, you know, somewhat crumble, but I thought that was normal. I thought deal making was hard. So I'm really humbled that I got to learn um, from that company um, when I did. And it was all about, you know, again, leasing projects that, um, you know, were in great markets, but doing so quick. And so they had a, a little different perspective. You know, it was deliver shareholder value and, and fill space, fill space, fill space. So I feel like I kind of got my MBA going to sleep with my BlackBerry and waking up with my BlackBerry, you know, with that company and traveled the country representing Westfield um, in their 70 projects at that point, you know, from Lincoln, Nebraska to San Francisco to Miami. And after that, I switched back to the private developer where I worked for the Irvine Company. Donald Brand is the largest landholder private developer in the United States. And um, it was fascinating to see his basically portfolio um, from his perspective, which is really not just retail. It was understanding how retail is interwoven into the greater world when you have office nearby, you know, multifamily nearby and hospitality, all of which he owned. It was really making sure that the retail would help him drive office rents and apartment rent because it was a perfect amenity to that region. But after a while, exactly three and a half years ago, my entrepreneurial blood kicked in. I have parents who have founded and sold several businesses. So it was probably just a matter of when. And I realized that on the broker side, humbly, there just weren't that many leaders, not many quarterbacks that really stood and remained in the deal from start to finish. And so I wanted to create a firm that took my background with specialty projects that were really leaders nationally and be able to apply that to either brands or developers who didn't have in-house leadership or ammunition when it comes to curating a project and deal flow, et cetera. So I launched my firm, Ukrapina Seba, three and a half years ago, and it's just been the absolute best thing I ever did. I have incredible support. We continue to grow each year, and, and our pipeline has been all organic, just great, you know, are, are humbled by our reputation, and I get to work with, you know, people like you, Jason, and others who really are trying to keep retail relevant. As you know, it's changing faster than anyone can keep up with. So we try to basically provide our services and find those deals that ultimately are going to drive top financial strength to their projects for either, for whatever their goals might be. Obviously, whether they hold or whether they sell that, you know, our strength and our deals are substantial when compared to others. Yeah, that's great. I mean, if we have time later, I'd love to talk a little bit about what you're seeing or what you think it would be the future of retail. Like you said, it's changing so much. We see it every day too, but you know, I do want to focus today on a little bit of kind of what happens behind the scenes. I'm curious too, so have you always been interested in 
real estate or you know retails in specific as well or how did how what motivated you or inspired you to go that direction yeah very much so on my maternal side my grandfather was a developer actually a residential developer and so i think you know just the understanding of idea through execution was just absolutely fascinating and working on you know the owner side you know 99% of my professional life owning the keys to the house is really exceptional and being able to then have the control to do what you wish you know what you wish based on your goals you know to me was was the most intriguing so absolutely just watching even from my parents they've been married 42 years and have lived in 17 homes just to see what they've done each time you know with an idea to execution has been it's just fascinating and so i wanted to be a part of it and you know help others drive their value through real estate which i really believe especially on the retail side jason is you know part of a community's fabric it really is and so to me how we can create a community and bring them you know thoughtful uses that drive not only the asset value of the project but the street or the neighborhood and ultimately change you know and gentrify for the right reasons is really means a lot means a lot to our business Westfield Irvine company Caruso these are super super rock stars big names what would you say is the biggest takeaway for you from the time or experience you've had with them yeah i mean i think in the beginning you know it was just assume the position right raise your hand show up you know all the things that you know my favorite you know quote is you know you have two ears and one mouth and you probably best to use them in that proportion so really just leaning in wherever necessary because they didn't get there the easy way i think a common thread of all of them is they're truly perfectionist i mean almost not to a fault but really absolutely no room for error no room for error double check trickle check pound the pavement i mean absolutely practice what you preach and i think that is obvious when you visit any one of their projects and you look at their portfolio you know triple a so you know i just learned to really be available and again just participate where necessary but don't speak unless you absolutely know the answer and if you don't go find it and they really respect you when you find when you take the time to figure it out and return with the answer and earlier you mentioned the word placemaking it's one of those big words takes multiple forms you know it means different things to different people like leadership or love can you explain a little bit you know maybe on a personal take what you believe placemaking means or how does it get translated into a physical environment yeah and and a lot of it is intangible you know you think about where you have a free hour over your weekend you know and you or you bring someone into town that hasn't been to your neighborhood where are you going to take them and why you know and so it's really so many elements Jason far beyond just me figuring out the right tenant the right restaurant it's going a step further and saying upon especially in retail before you even arrive to the street or or arrive to the shopping center what are you going to be greeted by and how is parking easy is parking difficult right and then once you exit your car you know how quickly can you survey you know the project you know to turn left or turn right so so much of what we do is yes fill the spaces but it's also defining you know the pieces in between right to then uh, again 
extend the reasons for you to stay a bit longer. Ultimately, as I shared, especially in retail, we often derive, besides just the classic sales per square foot, we also talk about length of stay. And it's just in human nature, you stay longer, you tend to then open your wallet. And of course, that then leads to hopefully driving revenues. So placemaking is an art, and I hate to be so abstract, but it is true. And, you know, it comes down to, yes, I can bring a tenant, but especially in a more like you know, organized fashion shopping center, what's the lighting, what's the planting, what's the safety, what's the, you know, what's the parking, you know, you really have to think about how all those elements tie together to make a place. But you look at, you know, so many streets, I mean, you and Lynn, and, you know, us in LA, you know, Abbott Kinney, for instance, it's been a place, you know, for five, seven years, but it took a really just thoughtful effort by a lot of owners to hold hands and say, we're going to, you know, we're going to rev the engines and really work to change over, you know, what this place means. And now it's a significant retail environment and destination in West, you know, in LA, but it took a lot of business owners holding hands and a lot of brands to say, I get it, I get it. And I'm going to come on board. So honestly, Jason, we have to really tell a story when we're releasing authentically, if it's not true that they're going to see right through you. But a story really helps to define that place. And then hopefully you get enough folks to, you know, agree that it works with their business plan. And then you effectuate that change over time. But you work tirelessly to marry the right brands to the right space. And then the brand or the restaurant has to do their work after, you know, to actually convert and sell those goods or, you know, serve that great food. Backing up a little bit, how do you work with, I'm assuming at the, before you even get there, you're having to work with the municipalities, the neighborhoods, the, the community and all that. How do you bring them on board or do you start collecting the land and visualizing the space and then present it to them? How does that portion of the process work? Yes. So candidly, most of our work is after entitlements have been earned um, and after the general site plan has <laughs> been defined. But a lot of times we do have to incorporate ourselves before that, Lynn, because we really have to articulate ultimately once it's built, yeah, what's the impact, certainly financially, but what's the impact traffic-wise, what's the impact sales tax-wise, and what type of brands are we going to bring to this project to, yeah, elevate, you know, X, insert X community. So you really do kind of have to get high level early to get them on board, even well beyond the actual, you know, environmental and physical impact of the space. So there's several iterations of what we call merchandising. You know, basically we lay over, you know, a plan and say, okay, this is our customer. This is what they aspire to need. You know, this is what their, you know, income levels are and their spend potential. And because of that, or and the whole, and plus the holes in the market, this is what we believe we should fill the spaces with. And then obviously you run through so much exercises to exhaust. Yes. Is that actually feasible? You know, could those tenants a come and then B, do we even have the land area to lay it out relative to the parking in, you know, needs, et cetera. So what we call merchandising and placemaking is chiseled away, like layer, you know, after each and every step, but it's important to be involved in the start because if it's not designed properly, you know, insert grocery store is not going to come in because they don't have a way to back in and back out. So you really have to understand the nuances of how every operator functions so that the layout and certainly the site plan can actually make it happen. 
On a situation like that, do you, where you mentioned the grocery store, do you guys start with an anchor tenant? Do you say, you know, we're going to bring a development here and it, we need a grocery store in this area. Let's start with finding the grocery store and then you build around it. Or does it just kind of all come from all sides? You know, it's a great question. And sometimes for maybe smaller you know, kind of classic strip centers were obviously were built so exponentially over the last, you know, 20 years. Yes, they started with the anchor and then would lease off the anchor, right? So they would say that, you know, because, you know, insert grocer here would drive so much morning, noon and night traffic, this is the type of customer. And based off that grocery, right, there are various types of grocers. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly even changing now. So yes, traditionally, in the past, you would lease off of it. But now, you know, the anchor could be less literal, like a 30,000 square foot grocery store, it could be, you know, we want to create a, you know, streetscape with food and beverage. So food and beverage, you know, could be the anchor. And it's not just one, it's a collection of six, right, with patios, and, you know, common areas in the middle, so that you can really stop and linger. Or, you know, there's absolutely no, you know, insert fashion or fitness or whatever here. So we're going to build you know, a community of fashion as the anchor, if that makes sense, or obviously homewares or whatnot. So yes, there still is some segmentation, I guess you could say that drives a lot of merchandise planning. But you know, it it sometimes is more thematic than it is, we want Costco. I mean, certainly that exists. But we'd be so lucky to be in that situation now. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So you mentioned quarterbacking. So assuming you stay on on that analogy and you're the quarterback how what would you say the developer is well i mean you got a quarterback at your baby i mean i would say it's quite similar but you know i think you just you not only have to be your best advocate but you just got to wear so many hats you know and that i think what makes eucropina seba unique is that we really we are multi-hyphenate. Yes, we can run figures and we can try to source and relate to, you know, certain tenants and then marry them with the right owner, but you really just can't step away. You then, you know, have to convey to the business, you know, to the owner of the property, you know, why they are this, the right link in this chain, you know, for the next, you know, 10 years. And, certainly then we have to be able to go from the boardroom to the showroom. You know, we use that analogy, especially with our fashion brands seamlessly. So, you know, again, I think that the developer has to take interest in every aspect. Ultimately, you know, you'll delegate certain needs like brokers and and consultants for their strengths and sourcing. But I think, you know, that multi-hyphenate analogy is probably right where you just have to be able to take a step back and look at life from the 30,000 foot big picture view, but, you know, be able to meet on the ground with each, you know, tenant, for instance, in my perspective, to understand what makes them tick so you can qualify them and say, gosh, yeah, they really have the fighting chance to be a long-term tenant, or maybe I should pass because, you know, in, in three years from now, I'm, I'm just not quite sure if they can withstand this storm. In that merchandising process, you know, I think in the residential world, it, in a sense, it's almost so much simpler, right? Like we're just looking at what's the rent, what's the vacancy, what's sort of absorption or future deliveries, but they're essentially all homes or all apartments. In the retail space, what kind of metrics or what kind of studies or data sources are you looking at to see, okay, yeah, like, I mean, sure, everybody would love to, whole, to have a Whole Foods or 
a Costco, but what are some maybe quantitative factors and maybe even qualitative as well that you're looking to determine what's the best fit for between the tenant, marrying the tenant and the landlord? It's a great question. And Jason, it's changing as we speak. So previously, the most common metric was what are your sales per square foot? For an existing project, a tenant would ask you what are your sales per square foot? If you were a developer, you know, consulting or considering a tenant, you'd ask them the same. Well, those days are gone. Those days are gone, especially with the, you know, obvious relationship between digital and offline. And plus, you know, sales per square foot has changed once we introduced Tesla and Apple to the mix, right? Tesla could sell $120 million worth of cars out of 5,000 square feet and completely thwart the average sales per square foot of a shopping center. So we started to get smart and we'd say, okay, what are your sales per square foot with Apple excluded or Tesla excluded? But again, with the role of the retail store evolving so dramatically, we are now looking at data differently. So almost retail has to be qualified as or a store as almost like a running ad, if you will, right? So you're on your way to the grocery store, you check your Instagram on the way, something pops up about, you know, some coffee, then you see it in Whole Foods, oh my gosh, it resonated. But you know, I don't have time to pick that up because I have my kid on my arm. Then you go home at night and you end up subscribing, you know, to Illy Coffee's monthly delivery, right to your home. So even though, where do you attribute that sale, right? Is it the digital? Is it seeing in Whole Foods and then going online? It's really changing. We do not talk to restaurants or retailers unless they have a belief and an investment in both, you know, retail stores as well as, you know, online presence, whether it be DoorHub, you know, Grubhub, DoorDash, be able to reach me when I can't go drive. I'm sorry, um, did you just predict a merger? <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah, just did. But also, you know, have a space where someone can actually touch and feel your product and your service. So it's really changing, Jason. We look at mobile data, believe it or not, a lot now. And meaning like where are people coming from to your shopping center? How long are they staying? Where are they going next? Are they staying at your shopping center longer than the one next door? Why? So it is evolving. But I'd say, you know, obviously quality, you know, just do they, is their product solid? Does it taste good? Does it feel good? Do they send you an email after I buy in store, you know, and then they have me now in their, you know, web of digital marketing it is multi-layered. And to your point, I'm like, why didn't I just do office? Like, why did I, why didn't I just go with industrial? But retail is detail and I love it. And I love how something is made. I love the joy you share at restaurants for a celebration among friends and, you know, the moments that are created in these spaces, but let's not kid ourselves only the good are going to prevail. So again, it's making sure that as a you know shopping center owner, you're looking at your breadth of users and do they have again penetration in both? Are they driving you know traffic to their in-store as well as digital? And then from a tenant perspective, is this landlord you know has simple things like Uber and Lyft drop drop up and pick up you know, or do they have you know an Instagram so that 
I can consider going to their shopping center more than, you know, the, the competitor. So that was a super, super long-winded question, but um, the traditional metrics are now growing, you know, irrelevant by the day because you just can't qualify someone based on their brick and mortar sales when they're doing some online and offline, but I'm picking up in store after buying it on, on the website. I think we have to bring up, there's also another little elephant in the room. You know, we're living now in the land of COVID. So where, and I don't want to take the whole rest of our time talking about COVID, but where do you see that? Because we've just got, I mean, everything has just shifted and it's shifted quickly and we assume it's going to go back, but we don't know when it's going to go back. How do you kind of see that playing into all this and how you plan for things and how it's going to affect your tenants and that sort of thing? Yeah, it really, really has to some degree, you know, for bad or good, you know, the strong will prevail. Those that had, again, obviously significant cash reserves or really thought about the relationship of omni-channel retail, you know, who had great pickup and carry out already and a quick app so that I can order and drive up and in four seconds have it in my car without even touching anything, you know, we're quick, quick to earn the, the, um, you know, the respect and certainly the dollars of, you know, the early adopter consumer who wanted to go out in some respects, but yeah, Lynn, it's real. And I think there'll be some permanent shifts for the better. Again, time is fleeting. And so the time that I do want to spend, you know, shopping, I want it to be done, you know, basically specific to me. So we talk about clienteling, and this can be for food as well as fashion. You know, do you know who I am? You know, this is, it was once a thing thought for luxury that, you know, a luxury customer can walk into a luxury brand and they're going to roll out the red carpet. Lynn, how are you? How's your dog? You know, how is Colorado? Blah. That should be for everyone nowadays. You know, taking the time to invest in each customer, big or small, so that you really target, you know, their needs quickly to convert to that sale faster. But yes, I mean, the obvious, you know, touchless, you know, obvious spelling out your health and sanitization protocol is going to be critical. But there is some pent up demand, right? People, I think, do want to go out. They do want to start. We're humans. We're not meant to survive. We're meant to thrive. So I think they want to do it, but they want to know that the protocol has been in place. And frankly, I've been to some places where it's not, and I'm not going to go back, you know, but and I won't forget about that for a while. You know, there's going to be some permanent shifts, just like a lot of people don't remember taking off their shoes at TSA. There's going to be a lot of that in retail, you know, where you're just going to be cognizant of, of all those processes and procedures, but it's being ironed out as we speak. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a chart too. the growth of e-commerce for the past 10 years was essentially surpassed or matched in, in the six last months. Day. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the retailers and even now, especially too with the restaurants, you know, if they didn't have an omni-channel uh, strategy before, it's very much, in my opinion, less of an either or is an end conversation for a lot of these people. And, you know, I, I think that's definitely something both tenants and landlords have to keep in mind. How do you tie back to the placemaking, right? Like pickup stations, curbside pickups and all that, whether it's door grub or Grub, grub dash? Anyway. Grub dash. dash. <laughs> but, you um, know, the interesting thing is, Jason, and I fully echo that, the cost to acquire a customer online is extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. Extremely expensive. So it is still pushing 
the need for brick and mortar. And as I kind of mentioned that, you know, running ad, right? It's a place to touch and feel, but I might not buy, but I'm going to follow up that evening, build a cart and then purchase because of what I learned in store. And then quickly buy three or four more times online because I've been acquired in the store, which again is much, is a ton of you know, cost savings with that. But I agree, you really have to have both and it's expensive, but it's the really only way to survive. Well, and back, back to your point you made a, few, a little bit earlier is people like to go shopping. They like to go wander through the stores and, you know, we're, I'm constantly shocked at friends that I talk to that that's what they're going and doing. They're like, oh, well, I went to this store and I went to that store. And I'm just like, what do you mean you went to that store? I know, I know, <laughs> but, I you know, know, that's what they like to do. They like to go browse. It's one of their hobbies. And it so is. I don't see that changing. It's just yeah. a matter of how the industry changes to make that work. Correct. Absolutely. And conveys it, you know, thoughtfully and authentically is, is everything. But yeah, this is the great accelerator. We didn't hope it would happen in this, you know, grave of a manner, but it's here. And so how quickly those can adapt will be a sure sign of their success or, you know, uh, hope for success. That's for sure. sure. So getting into some of the nitty gritty, you know, putting on your quarterback helmet, You'd like to get involved early, thinking through a lot of these different elements, doing your market research, finding out who would be some good prospects or good tenants to go into these places. What do you do next? How do you go market this building or these tenant spaces? I think that's also a reason why I started my firm is kind of the classic way of doing things. It didn't speak to me, nor did I think it was effective with the end user. So yeah, maybe a broker, you know, speaks broker speak, but a chef, you know, surely does not and has no interest in it. When we create packages for our projects or our tenants, they really convey, you know, the ethos of the project, the place, the spirit of the community, and certainly who we want to link hand with to get there. We utilize all channels, you know, video, social, pounding the pavement, I think is a lost art and we get out there. Even now in COVID, we're starting to safely go out there and really survey the street, you know, who's open, who's closed, those that are open, what does it look like, and really try to glean some real-time information and qualified prospects. But just like anything, it's sales. You know, you have to be present, you have to be out there, and you have to meet them more, more than once or twice to even get their, you know, attention. And certainly now with COVID, you know, it is a hell of an ask to, you know, a restaurateur in particular to open up knowing that they might have another restriction or occupancy, you know, forced on them, you know, based on um, what's happening in the world. So we, our brands are on social, our restaurants are on social, we go on social. They're in the store, we try to introduce ourselves thoughtfully, take a really authentic approach to what they're doing, learn about their business and say, hey, we have something that you know practices and preaches the same. Would you like to link arms? But again, it's it's what I mentioned about you know two ears and one mouth. You really got to understand someone's pain and need, and then try to basically make sure that your project, your piece of real estate, is that solution. So you market it. In, I mean, in residential world, right? For tenant screening, we're looking, you know, their sort uh, their income level or eviction history or sure. credit report. For a commercial or retail tenant, what? How do you screen them usually? 
we look at everything, Jason. I mean, we get into the financials, you know, at least the last handful of years to see how they run their business, you know, what their expenses are relative to, you know, and, and sales, what's their profitability. You know, with restaurants, we get down to beverage costs and labor costs. I mean, down to the nitty gritty say, can they even afford this? You know, so, can they afford yeah, it? And then do they have- Affordability, like yeah. in residential, there's sort of a general- guideline or rule of thumb that rent should be totally. about a third of the income for say a restaurant or retail how much should i don't know if there is a i mean I'm it's a great question there's yeah, not it, there's no hard and fast rule but what is sort of general guideline no hard that, and, yeah so we define it as you know rent to sales ratio or occupancy cost so what is their rent exactly relative to their total sales in food and beverage it is 10 percent or less especially if you are full service, they want to be at five or six because food costs, labor are exceptional and only growing on this West Coast. Fashion could be a little bit different, especially if they produce, you know, elsewhere. We really define what are their cost of goods? You know, what, you know, how do they design? Where do they produce? How quickly can they get that to the customer? You know, and kind of what is that lead time and what are their sales channels? So with fashion, we have this, direct to consumer, right? Where you can go online and buy an Everlane sweater and boom, you know, you have it in your door in, in 72 hours or wholesale where a lot of old school brands were inside these big department stores and relied on these big orders from Macy's and Bloomingdale's and well, look at them. You know, they're, ha- they're hemorrhaging. They're having a huge challenge. So, you know, our tenants, how are tenants or fashion brands relying on what are their distribution channels? And then certainly, what are their costs at the end of the day and say, okay, does this make sense? If our rent is X and they need working capital to even stay afloat, are they going to be able to make it based on just their business model? So we absolutely look at that rent to sales ratio all the time, Jason, all the time. And we now look at if digital sales are fulfilled from the store as well, because that's kind of the elephant in the room is like, I can buy online but I might be able to pick it up in store, which is a piece of, you know, cotton that was in the store that came from the store. So where is that sale attributed? So maybe their sales are actually a little bit more because of the digital aspect. So, you know, we're rewriting sales uh, clauses and leases to account for this just change and shift that's happening. Is that for all of the tenants or just the smaller ones? So for instance, would you do that to a Costco? Or would you just say, you know, at Costco, it's Costco. Some have more leverage than others, Lynn. Some have more leverage than others. You know, Costco obviously being a significant driver, you know, would have more leverage. However, you know, they now are rolling out great systems for buying online and pick up in store. And, and so where, again, where is that sale attributed? So I'd say new leases. Absolutely. Or folks that have been asking for reductions during this time, landlords are trying to renegotiate certain clauses for their added upside if and when we return to some next normal. So yes, it is being asked across the board. Speaking of leverage negotiations, what are some common lease terms and durations that's a great question. Food and beverage typically is 10 years plus, Jason, because the cost is so significant to build a kitchen and build a restaurant. You know, fashion traditionally in, you know, pre-COVID times, you know, was three to five years. 
a lot of these digital brands that everyone has wanted, these darlings, the Warby Parkers, whatever you, you name, were, you know, somewhat savvy and negotiating either lesser terms because they didn't quite know what they would learn, you know, over three years. They might not even be around for three years before this, right? So traditionally food is 10 plus, you know, with options so that if they do well, they pre-negotiated five more years. Fashion, you know, traditionally, again, five years plus, but it is really changing with, you know, COVID and trying, everyone's trying to protect themselves. And what are some clauses on both sides of the table for landlord and tenants? What are some common clauses that behoove them not to negotiate for or ask for, or maybe should, you know, hire you guys to represent them kind of thing to get? Yeah, so it's going to change, you know, landlords want term and credit, you know, they want credit. So they want security knowing that if something goes awry, they can pursue, you know, an entity that they can recoup, you know, God forbid some damages. So that can be personal guarantors or, or corporate guarantors. You know, they're putting up quite a bit of money themselves. They want to know that they have this marriage that is equal on the other side. So I think developers are really looking for credit more than anything at this moment, you know, and certainly terms so they can underwrite, you know, more things. It's getting harder with COVID and, you know, that they probably want some protection that the tenant is going to, you know, stay in their lanes. We often look at use clauses that someone is going to actually open up as a ramen noodle bar and not the next day turn into, you know, an, an ice cream shop. Again, it goes back to merchandising. So really making sure that someone stays within their lane, you know, on the tenant side, certainly they're trying to mitigate their you know, capital outlay from the start. So they're now looking for flexibility and quite a bit of allowance to lower their cost of doing business at the start. So they're looking for landlords to either, you know, turnkey the space, provide quite a bit of cash to help them create that great store. They're also looking for certain clauses to protect them in the what if, you know, we had force majeure and we've had force majeure, but you know, didn't include pandemics. It didn't include, you know, this act of God, right? So making sure that they have the flexibility to close down and maybe not pay rent or as much rent if they only can have 25% of their Pilates machines occupied. So tenants are really having to look at that what if situation and yeah, trying to offload that financial burden onto the owner so that when they open, they can just spend the money marketing and driving traffic to that space. This might be a dumb question, but how do you evaluate the credit? I don't think Experion or FICO has a credit score for businesses, right? Like the, do the landlords essentially have to put on their banker hat and look we at We do. Yeah, we put on our credit review hat, absolutely. So it depends. You know, if it's a startup, we do demand a personal guarantor and we run the credit, you know, as you would. You so know, you're looking uh, at the individual as well correct. on top correct. of the businesses. Absolutely. And in the business, we run our own credit assessment based on, you know, assets, prior years, volume, et cetera. And then well, you mentioned protection, like you were talking about how the ramen shop won't turn into an ice cream shop. <laughs> so after you filled the development at the beginning, do you continue to stay involved and curate future businesses that come in? We do. We do. Not always because they might have an operating team, Lynn, where, you know, they can fill the one or two spaces if that happens, but you're right, churn, we're not perfect. We're, you know, we like to lease a project and keep it hundred percent leased forever, but that's not life, nor do we want that. Styles change, segments change, brands change, people change. So yeah, we do oftentimes come in and, and stay on as just, 
you know, that sounding board and, and help renew and fill in some spaces when necessary. But at least for our business, we kind of come in, you know, at the ground and again, create that strategy and implement it and then pass a baton on to someone else or come in when the redevelopment is needed and they need an, they need a hammer, you know, to really redefine the, the mix. So it really depends on the size of the developer and how much bend strength they have. Do you enjoy representing landlords more or tenants or how different is it? That's a great question. I think my DNA, Jason, has been on the owner side, you know, and again, not owning the keys to the house, but yes, really understanding how link A relates to link B and being able to convey that with, you know, a lot of gumption that, yeah, this place is going to be run in this way and this is what we stand for and actually be able to follow through. So I, I really like the building blocks. On the flip side, the tenant is so neat because you serve as their external real estate department and to carry one point of view and really, you know, shout to the world what they stand for nationally is quite a bit of fun. And frankly, knowing both has supported both partners, right? We know what the sticking points and needs are of developers. So when we're doing the tenant work, I really know where to push and where not to. And the same is true on the other side. So I like having experience with both because I feel ultimately we do create a better product and marriage, if you will, on both sides, because I can convey the nuances and needs of both sides quickly and hopefully get that across the finish line for a better deal. So it's both. It's both. Yeah, no, I think it's, I mean, whether it's retail or residential, it does, it does, it is beneficial to be on both sides of the tables. Like you can be a residential listing agent all day long, but you, you kind of have to go to some open houses to see what people are looking for nowadays, you know, more space or, or, you know, two offices maybe, or working space in the home. This show is more for developers or for builders, again, flipping the table around what makes a location more attractive or the kind of amenities that developers should maybe consider to add to generate more rent and therefore higher increase the property value for them? Right. Location, location, location. You know, one is access, you know, and as simple as, you know, when you actually look at the site, you know, can someone get in and get out effectively is really critical especially for retail, being on one side of the street versus the other. You know, you really have to observe and study those nuances. You know, in my business, we really focus on specialty. And so it's understanding, you know, the, the demographics and the spend potential of the area and then building a product that is in line with that user, you know, and again, working towards their aspirations. But you know, don't try to put a Whole Foods in a, a market that, that's just not realistic. Um, it's not realistic for your shopper and it's not realistic for Whole Foods. So again, it's just understanding the, the penetration. In, in America, we have this over-retail problem where we are over-retailed by so much. Like, so I don't even know X, X, X than any other, you know, modern world. And so with our retail partners, we really look at, you know, is there enough you know, volume to, is there enough to be made here, you know, relative to the overabundance or maybe it's underserved. So yes, it's the right thing to do. So we really look at the saturation, Jason, of the market and the, you know, the void analysis. So, okay, it's obvious we're taking care of here, but what's missing. And so we might, 
you know, pull parallels with other submarkets that have similar demographics and similar access to our developers. So it's so multifaceted. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately it's kind of coming back full circle. It's about fulfilling that need, right? So where do you see some of the most interesting things happening right now? If you just, you can look inside or say somewhere inside the U.S., outside the U.S., do you, is there anything really exciting going on that you've seen that, that you think is going to influence other folks or that you just love? Yeah, I mean, I think we do spend our time, Lynn, on the West Coast. And I think we're lucky in that quite a bit of the trends do start, you know, on the cusp. It's been so neat to see, again, regions that, you know, really didn't have any sort of spark take shape. We're working on some really cool adaptive reuse projects where they're taking old buildings and really saying, okay, what does a retailer need right now? They need to produce, they need to distribute, and they need a little bit of retail. So kind of, you know, these, it's an old, you know, department store, and we're basically gathering three to five of the best beverage makers, you know, craft artists and, you know, purveyors in Southern California, and they're going to, you know, link arms and create this, you know, sub-community and this big building where they can make and learn from each other, and a shopper can come and, you know, spend an afternoon. But guess what? It's closest to three of the, fastest highways and they can get it out to their distribution points instantaneously. So, you know, old making new, I think there's something, there's such legacy to that and and such authenticity to that, which makes kind of some of the strip and kind of beige fabric of some part of town just kind of lose its, its luster. So I think there's a lot happening in all over the country and it's spearheaded by people that again, want to create places. They want to create places. And, you know, it's hard because you also need, you know, a financial model that is completely stable. Details. Details. But again, shoppers are pretty persnickety. And so, you know, it's creating an environment that they can stay and linger. You know, you'll get long-term value out out of that, making sure that it's near where they live, near where they work, and it's easy to get there. And that's happening, you know, faster in these super urban, you know, dense markets Mm -hmm. where you see, you know, livability and walkability really encourage some great, great development. Good deal. Kind of repurposing or, you know, kind of changing old properties to new, you know, we're pressing up against the time here, but what are some things you're seeing, you know, as some of these retails go out of business or get become dilapidated? What are some of the things you're seeing or ideas you've been hearing or maybe your personal idea on how we can repurpose some of these like you said there's too much retail right it's kind of funny like i know you go to icsc they they invite these consultants every year i think it's one it's kind of more for fun and two it is to be good to have devil's advocate and their presentation every year is like we have too much retail like 30 percent retail that makes zero sense but what does the future hold or how can we put some of these parcels to better use Yeah, I think, you know, and it kind of goes back to our, you know, omni-channel focus, the last mile. Shoppers, again, old and new are demanding faster, smarter, you know, in the moment I need it now and I have no patience. So, you know, how can, you know, restaurants, how can fashion, you know, get closer to the customer? And so, yeah, I mean, obviously the you know, rumors of Amazon's going to take all these old Macy's boxes and, you know, have distribution, you know, some of that is possible. Some of it's not because physically, you know, these buildings don't have the infrastructure to have, you know, cars zooming in and out. I mean, not to mention zoning change probably, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, to mention the traffic and to your point, like just the 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 traffic demand it's going to require. But yeah, again, how can you get somewhere, you know, how can you do it all at once, right? And so a lot of it is, you know, finally decommissioning retail, you know, for whether it be park, whether it be obviously multifamily is an obvious, you know, office and really frankly, making much more money with that conversion. And then you're leaving just the right amount of retail that actually can satiate the appetite and, and, you know, make it work, you know, because of the consumer demand. Yeah, we're looking at it every single day, Jason, because there is too much retail and they're in great, great locations. You know, what is the best use? And, you know, a lot of it is going to require the cities to really wake up and get on board. And so it's going to be a long haul to, you know, force them to reconsider. Because in the past, you know, a multifamily development condominium apartment high-rise comes up in LA, they're going to put retail at the bottom. You know, they thought that was the solution. I'm not sure that's the solution. (laughs) Yeah, we really have to rethink, you know, what's the highest and best use, and then ultimately what's going to drive value as well to the developer. So it's happening. You and your team, you only do leasing, is that right? We only, you know, our strength is leasing. Um, do you guys help people buy and sell properties we as well or capital? We do. We do. Call it capital markets? I don't know why they call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, we do. Right. We definitely do. We don't, it's not our core function yet, but I do also think, Jason, I mean, yes, we are masters in retail. We study trends. We are in the markets. We travel. You know, that is our world. But I do think that, you know, the lines are going to continue to be blurred as well because, you know, a fashion office design might have retail in the back or retail in the front. So we have done quite a bit of deals that are outside strict retail, right, that complement retail, however, and it's the same problems, you know, it's the same, more or less the same speak. And then, yes, we are doing some more acquisition and divesting for clients as well based on the market. Yeah, I mean, the reason I ask is I was hoping for the projects, you've had the, the fortune to see full cycle, right? You got oh, yeah. involved early, you're quarterbacking, leased up, stabilized, same kind of process going for, res- for residential, you're leasing out of apartment. I mean, I do know some brokers, agents, they sort of specialize, they don't want to do both and kill so many brain cells. I was hoping you can touch on for the developers that you, you work with, what goes into that decision to whether to keep a property or sell it? Jason, it is just developer to buy developer. You know, some just are long-term holders. Cash flow is the game, you know, and that is what they want to do. Some they want to sell for exchange or, you know, to acquire XYZ. So it makes my job wonderful, but also very intricate because just like no lease is the same, no owner is the same. And with COVID, it's been fascinating because you'd think they'd want to fill up the spaces, but they have no debt. So they don't need to rush. They want the perfect tenant, want to be patient so that, you know, if and when they sell, their rent roll is sturdy and underwritten at the highest, you know, highest base rent. So I really have to be their fiduciary and understand what their financial goals are so that every deal I bring forward is on point with that hold or exit. So we really get in knee deep, um, you know, in the beginning of, you know, what is their, what are their thresholds? 
so that we, you know, drive the velocity and the rent and the lease activity according to that strategy. So again, it's not our forte, so I don't have the best answer for you, but we make sure that every piece of the puzzle aligns with what they want to do at the end of the day. Yeah, so it sounds like a lot of it's personal or it's just maybe their initial strategy or in their DNA to whether yeah. they're build and hold guy or build and sell guy. So Totally. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for joining on today. Are you ready for our lightning round groundbreaker questions? Oh, yes. I have, I've had my coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Lynn, do you want to go first here? So in the before times, in the before times before COVID, we all live very different lives. So what do you miss the most? What are you looking forward to getting back to that, that uh, hopefully somebody will be able to get back to? Yeah. I mean, I miss my pals, like retail, residential people in general. Like I just miss the people. I miss talking and walking and hugging and engaging and, you know, asking genuinely what they're doing. And then, yeah, I miss my 5.30 a.m. Barry's boot camp. It was like my, <laughs> my zen. I have two kids under three. And so it was like my time, pitch black, get it out, get home, read emails, and then rock and roll. So I miss that therapy. Well, I hope Barry's boot camp comes back soon. Well, they're doing, uh, they're pivoting. They're on now the top of a parking structure. They have silent disco headphones. So everyone's, you know, pounding along, but you know, the apartment dwellers next door can't hear you. And again, they're just making it work. So yeah, I'll be doing that soon here enough. However, I found another option. So maybe that's Uh a question we'll talk about later. What's your favorite quote? You have two ears and one mouth, you know, best (laughs) to use that in that proportion. I also think that be more interested than interesting is critical, you know, and personal and professional. And and I think that genuine interest in others conveys respect, buy-in, you know, and, and it's not that difficult, you know, to do so. So I try to stand by that personally as well as professionally. What is the worst advice that anybody's ever given you in your career? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Actually, I, I did have a woman tell me, don't wear that dress. In, in commercial real estate, it is male dominant. I don't need to tell anyone that. Especially retail, which is, no offense, Jason, kind of fascinating because women control, you know, three quarters of the spending and buy 98% of the items for their significant other, friend, son, boyfriend, whatever. But I've actually taken that to the opposite. And I'm like super proud to stand out among the sea of men and, you know, use that as very empowering. So be who you are. Don't blend in. It's not, it's not helping anyone. And wear the damn dress. Wear the damn dress, wear the heels or pull your hair back. Whatever, exactly. makes, whatever makes you comfortable. Absolutely. You know, own it for sure. If you weren't doing what you're doing today, what other careers would you like to give a try? I would probably be a designer, you know, and I think it would probably be of hotels, to be honest with you. I think hospitality is being crushed right now, but it's so fascinating. And I love traveling the world. And I think creating, you know, beautiful spaces, world and a dream job. So something to do with design in some respects. Jane, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. I mean, it's been uh, full disclosure. I've, you know, I'm, I guess, not worked. We're still working together right now. Uh, it's been an honor and pleasure to work with you to 
you know, occasionally bug you on things that I, I need help with as well or questions on. How can folks get in touch with you or learn more about what you're, what you're up to? Yeah, please um, visit our website, usretail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Eucropina Seba. And I'm so humbled to be included, Lynn and Jason. You guys are absolute rock stars, and I really appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Okay, thank you. All right, thanks, Jillian. See you next time. Bye. This has been another great episode of Shovel Ready. Please subscribe and consider working with us. Follow us for more tips and let us know what you think of the show on Instagram at Jason underscore Shovel Ready. 